on this Valentine's Day, we're, we're going to talk about the greatest love story in all of human history. It's a tale of unrelenting pursuit. It's a tale of a love that never gives up, a love that defies all odds. Today, I know you're thinking of it, the greatest love story of all time. Let's say it, all say it together at the same time. The story of Israel. I know you were thinking it. And so right now, we're in a collection exploring the story of God. And our hope is that by understanding God's story, we'll have a clearer idea of how God calls us to live out our story today. And so a few weeks ago, we started with Act 1, creation. And God had a dream from the start, shalom, which we define as universal flourishing and wholeness between God, humanity, and all of creation. And so God created the world, and he saw that it was good. And then last week, we went into Act 2, the fall. Humanity is deceived by the serpent, and sin enters into the world because it enters into the human hearts. In other words, we have a problem out there because there's first a problem in here, and we define sin as the human propensity to F up right? And so we see things getting worse and worse as the story progresses, and we arrive here at Act 3, Israel. Now, unfortunately for many of us, this is the part of the story that we skip over or gloss over or are uninterested in or have a hard time understanding, and we read about creation and the fall, and we seem to skip right over to Jesus, and we wonder why so much of the Old Testament is dedicated to telling the story of this random nation, Israel. But I want to propose that in order to fully grasp Jesus's redemption and God's story and our place in it, we have to look at the story of Israel because we see in Israel's history prophetic glimpses of Jesus's redemptive work sprinkled all throughout this nation's history. And so if we have to, if we want to understand our story, if we want to understand our place in the story of God, we have to have a clear understanding of the story of Israel. And so we have a lot of ground to cover. We're going from Genesis 12, and we're speeding all the way to Malachi. You know, I'm going to skip over a lot of parts. We're going to summarize it, hopefully make it fun. But just track with me. Take out your pens, notepads. Let's take some notes. It's going to be really awesome and really important to dive deeper into the story of Israel. So let's do it. But before we do, let's pray. Yeah, God, we thank you for your presence here today. We pray that as we dive deeper into the story of Israel, we'll see our stories in the story of this nation, this underdog nation that you are so faithful with. And I pray today um, on Valentine's Day, we would see a love that never gives up, a love that continues to pursue, a love that continues to remain faithful and defy all odds as we see your love story with your people, Israel. We love you. We give you honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so humanity is infected by sin in the garden. And there's like this ripple effect from the fall. And things are getting worse and worse. But remember, God has a plan. God has a plan and his plan is to bring about his dream. And, and the way that he chooses to do this, the way he plans to bring about redemption is through a chosen people. And so the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God's interaction with this chosen people, this chosen nation, 
Israel. And so we're going to start by looking at Genesis 12, right after where we left off last time. And in Genesis 12, God chooses a man, Abram. And we're going to see in Genesis 12, verse 1, this is what it says. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, you got to be asking here, why does God choose Abraham? And to be quite honest, I actually don't know. You know, if, if it was me, I would have chosen someone a lot more fertile than Abraham or Sarah. I mean, do you know those couples when all they have to do is just look at each other and they're pregnant, right? Abraham and Sarah were old and they were unable to have kids. You know, on the other hand, I would have chosen a family or people with a lot of resources and a lot of influence. I mean, someone with at least 10K followers on Instagram, at least. But these were nobodies from nowhere. But we see this is consistent with God's pattern of choosing the small, the unseen, the insignificant things in the world to bring about his glory. The small shepherd boy in the field to be a king right? To the virgin teenager from a small town to bring in the Messiah. The uneducated wild fisherman boys to radically transform the world and build the church. And so if you ever wonder how God could use someone like you, just look at his track record, right? He uses the small, the unseen, the unpredictable things. And so we don't know why God chooses Abraham, But we do know the purpose why God chose Abraham for. What did he create or choose Abraham for? What was the purpose of choosing Abraham? And we see it in verse 3 in chapter 12, the, the verse we just read. It says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so God chooses this one family to be a vehicle of his blessing to all other families. In other words, God's plan for redemption here, his dream to be realized, will come through this family line, through Abraham and through all of his descendants. Now, we're going to jump to Genesis 15. It's this really weird story. Uh, We covered it extensively when we were in our covenant collection back in 2019. But it's a story of the cutting of the animal. And we're going to look at verse 17, Genesis 15, 17 through 18. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with the blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces of the animal. Now, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And so there was this ritual that was very common during this time where they would take an animal, and when they're making a covenant with each other, what they would do is they would take this animal, they would cut it in half, they would lay out the halves, And each party would walk in between the halves as a sign of their covenant and their promise to one another. And the reason why they did this is they were saying, may what what was done to this animal be done to me if I don't uh, hold up my end of the bargain, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant. It's like if me and Krista, we made a covenant or a vow to one another and we took fig and we cut him in half 
and we separated the halves and we each walked through as a symbol saying that what was done to fig will be done to me if I break my promise to you. That's what it was, a sign of the covenant. And so, you know, we actually added this to our premarital counseling. So if you're ever going to go through that with us, we're going to do this with y'all. You have to bring us an animal. Anyway, why is this significant? Abram cuts this animal in half. He separates the, the halves. He sets it up. And he falls into this deep sleep. And the Bible actually says that a thick darkness comes over him. Now remember, we said this two weeks ago. Whenever you see darkness or chaos, just like at the beginning of creation, God is about to do something. He's about to bring about something new. And so Abram, in this deep sleep, in this darkness, he sees this strange scene unfolding. A smoking fire pot comes, and it passes between the two halves of the animals. And it has a blazing torch on it, and it's just passing on through. Now, the fire pot in this strange scene represents God. And he's committing to this covenant with Abraham. He's saying, I will uphold my end of the covenant. I will make you a great nation and bless all families through you. And if I don't, may what was done to this animal be done to me. But here's the thing. Notice in this story that Abraham actually never walks through the split animals. Now, why is that significant? What God is saying here is that not only will he be responsible for upholding his end of the covenant, but even if Abram doesn't uphold his end, even if humanity doesn't uphold their end of the covenant, God is saying, I will pay the price. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to take full responsibility here. This is no ordinary, normal covenant. He's saying that even when humanity fails to live up to their end of the bargain, I will take responsibility. Even when humanity should take the fall, I will take the fall instead. Come on. Now, don't we see this every day in our lives that even when we aren't faithful, God continues to remain faithful. You know, one of my favorite uh, songs by artist John Thurlow is this song called Eyes of Mercy. And in the chorus, he sings, I'm holding on to your divine love. I'm holding on and I'm not letting go. It's not my zeal. It's that your love is strong. It's not my strength. It's that you're faithful. And isn't that embodied in the story of a God who's willing to make covenant with the people, with the person, and saying, even if you don't fulfill your end, I'll take the responsibility for that. And so we see that this, even here, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus, the one who's going to take the responsibility for our sin, for our inability to hold a covenant with God. And so God finalizes his covenant. He establishes it with Abram in Genesis 17, a very famous passage. It says, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations, and no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you 
and I will be their God. Come on. God is saying, your descendants will be my people. I will be faithful to them. And through them, I will bring about the redemption of the world, the blessing to all other families. All you have to do is walk with me, trust me, and obey my commands. And so this is the covenant. And while this is happening, we actually see that sin continues to ripple throughout humanity. And we see that Abraham is actually not immune from this. He actually falls deep into sin, even in his covenant with God. I mean, he wavers in his trust in God numerous times. There are two instances where he pimps out his wife and sells her. Like, I mean, we don't teach that in premarital counseling, okay? That's not something that you're supposed to do, but we see this consistent theme of humanity unable to remain faithful in their covenant with God, continuing to F things up. And so we see the covenant is established, but but humanity continues failing, living up to that covenant, unable to abide with God. And so we see the story continues, and we're just going to go trek on through. Abraham gives birth to Isaac, and Isaac gives birth to Jacob. And Jacob, he has 12 sons, one of which is Joseph that you probably know about if you've ever read the Bible before. But these 12 sons of Jacob would later become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? They're the 12 CG leaders of Israel church. And we see sin continue to ripple throughout the human story. Joseph has this incredible favor with his parents, with God, and his brothers get jealous. And so they beat the crap out of him and they actually sell him into slavery. You know, I've never had a sibling, but I doubt that's something that's ever gone through your mind. If you have a brother or a sister, or maybe it has and you need God, you really need him. I don't know, but I I wouldn't think to do that to my sibling, but we see the human condition getting worse and worse. And we see the story of Joseph and I'm just going to skip through it really quick. But Joseph sold into slavery. He rises throughout the ranks and he eventually finds himself as second in command over all of Egypt. You know, Joseph started from the bottom long before Drizzy did, okay? He embodies that story of coming from the very bottom and having the favor of God and rising all the way to the top of the nation. But eventually Joseph dies and generations pass and Israel is becoming strong. And they're really getting it on. Like they're multiplying and they're getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. And so Pharaoh of Egypt notices this and he gets nervous. He's saying, what if they get so strong and they take all the power from us? And so what Pharaoh in Egypt does is they enslave the entire nation of Israel. They put them to work with hard labor right? They put them to do all the grunt work of the kingdom of the empire, and they start murdering the firstborns so that Israel would not continue to multiply and grow stronger. And all this sets us up for the next chapter in the story of Israel, which is the story of Moses, okay? If you go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 through 8, this is what God's saying. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so God chooses out of all the people He chooses Moses 
to help deliver all of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Once again, why did God choose Moses, this murderer who's horrible at public speaking, yet he chooses him? And he speaks to him in a burning bush and chooses him to lead all the people out of bondage, out of Egypt. And so if you've ever seen the Prince of Egypt, right, it's a story, I believe in miracles, right? Moses rallies the people and they make their exodus out of Egypt. But I want us to pay attention about this part of the story. Pay attention to what's happening here. The Bible says that God goes before them as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so Moses is leading the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, but God is leading them as a cloud during the day. So they're just following this this nimbus cloud, right? And a fire by night. And while they're doing this, Pharaoh has a change of heart and he decides, no, we got to keep them. If you've ever seen the Rugrats version of the Prince of Egypt, right? No one to fill their cereal bowls. And so they're realizing that a lot of the work that they took for granted, now they need to get back by getting the Israelites. So they go after them, change their mind. And so the Israelites are fleeing, being led by the presence of God. And they get to the Red Sea and they're stuck. And I love this part. God, he splits the sea And he leads them through as a pillar of fire. Picture this. The Red Sea is split in half. There's a fire that's leading the people through the split sea. Does that sound familiar? It should because we literally just talked about it. Remember that when God came as a fire pot with a blazing torch and he passes through the split animal. In the same way, God here is leading his people through the split sea as a pillar of fire. In other words, God is fulfilling his covenant. He's continuing to be faithful. And this imagery is so crucial for us to understand Jesus' work. That as God led the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt, so he will lead all of humanity, all people out of slavery from sin. The exodus out of Egypt was foretelling our exodus out of sin. Our escape from the human propensity to F up, to mess up our lives, to ruin relationships, to ruin creation. And so we see that God continues to be faithful. And the story progresses and shows and foretells our coming exodus. And so as the story continues, you would think that things start to get better, like God intervened, he pulled us out of slavery. But now the people find themselves in the desert and they had just escaped Egypt And now they're in this desert and they're heading toward this promised land that God said is flowing with milk and honey. And every single day, God is providing manna for them. He's giving them substance to continue on. You know, bread has a lot of carbs. And so you would figure they would be happy. But after a while, they start complaining. They're saying, okay, this manna is whack. I'm going to need some beef. I'm going to need some chicken, some pork. And once again, humanity begins to waver in their trust in God. And they begin to try to decide for themselves what is best. And get this, even after being delivered from slavery and from Egypt, here in the desert, they begin to long for their days in slavery. You know, hear me, church. The enemy will trick you into choosing bondage over freedom. That's what he does. That's his MO. 
He makes bondage look so good. You know, people don't cheat on their partners because adultery looks unappetizing. It looks like it feels good. It looks good. But what it actually does is it, it leaves you bound. And so we see the enemy working again, the serpent, the very same lie. Is he really looking out for your good? We see it play out again. It's a reoccurring story, a reoccurring pattern. And so the people are complaining and not trusting that God is leading them somewhere amazing, that he knows what's best for them. And what was meant to be a 40-day journey to the promised land ends up being 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, all because they once again bought into the lie that God is withholding good from me. And now I have to take back control and be the God of my own life. So we see not much has changed. Now, a question that we get asked often, was the 40 years of wandering punishment? Like, was God punishing them for complaining in the desert? That seems a little bit harsh. But actually, when we look at the story, we should actually see it as an act of mercy. Even though they were out of Egypt, God had to get the Egypt out of them. You know, one of the most loving things that God could ever do in your life is to withhold your blessing until you're ready to receive it, right? Because if you're not ready for the blessing, how many of you know that it will destroy you? You know, a really alarming statistic is that 70% of lottery winners of big amounts of cash actually end up bankrupt, which tells us that blessing itself is, could actually be a curse if you're not ready to receive it and steward it well. And God knew that if they went into the promised land as they were, they would take what was meant to be a blessing for them and turn it into a curse. Come on, we need to thank God for some of the blessings that he holds on to us until we're ready for it. And so this is what's happening here. And so they're wandering 40 years. And in that wandering, there's this really profound moment that where God reestablishes his covenant with humanity. And so Moses, one day he goes up to Mount Sinai to meet with God and God begins reestablishing his covenant, reminding humanity about the covenant that was made between him and Abraham, that there would be a blessing that is poured out through this nation, that through this nation, God's redemptive work would come into play. And so we look at Exodus 19, four through six, Moses is up there on Mount Sinai. And this is what God says. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Hey, Moses, listen, Israel, if you continue to be faithful, I'm going to continue to be faithful to prosper you. And all you have to do is trust me to keep my commandments. And once again, we have to remember these laws weren't just the rules of a power-hungry God looking for obedience. These laws were actually for the good of the people. You know, I don't know why, but Fig just has this tendency to want to put his life in danger. He ran away twice. He keeps getting into things that he shouldn't eat. And, you know, earlier this morning, we came out, we, we woke up, and we saw that we had ordered these cookies from Chick-fil-A, these chocolate chip cookies in a heart-shaped box, and it was open, and Fig had ate a whole half cookie, which is really big for his size. We felt his stomach, like it was so full, so compact, so tight. We're like, man, Fig, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep breaking our rules and eating things that will literally kill you? And so 
I honestly don't know if he's going to live. So maybe by the time we're having this Sunday service, we'll let you know if he's dead or alive. But he has this propensity for effing up his life, for effing things up. And God is saying, these laws aren't just for you to obey because I, I'm a, you know, egomaniac that just needs to be obeyed. He's saying, these are for your good. These are for your flourishing. And so he says, let's, let's do this again. Let's, let's establish this covenant. I'm going to be faithful to you. You're going to, be my, you're going to be my prized possession in all of the world. Just follow me. Just trust me. Obey my commands. They're good for you. Now notice in this passage that God calls them to be a kingdom of priests. Now priests were mediators between God and humanity. And so God was calling Israel to reveal Yahweh to all of the nations, to reconnect humanity to their maker and to fulfill God's dream for Shalom. And once again, we see God's dream trying to be realized. And so Moses, he inscribes these commandments on tablets of stone. And he's coming down the mountain. And we see that once again, humanity finds a way to F up. While he was gone, the people take off all their gold. They take off their earrings, their nose rings, their rings, their necklaces, everything. They melt it down and they they form these golden images of calves. And they begin worshiping these idols. And once again, we see this theme of humanity not trusting God, breaking his covenant with them and deciding for themselves what is best, what to worship, who to follow. And they stop trusting the same God that delivered them from slavery, gave them bread to eat and was leading them to the promised land. Now, we're going to really pick up speed. We're getting to the end. I promise you, we're almost there. I know we're only through Exodus, but this next portion, we're going to speed through. Fast forward, they eventually do reach the promised land after 40 years of wilderness. But this pattern of humanity's sin and lack of trust in God continues to play out. And again and again and again, they break their covenant with God, looking to themselves, to idols, to other nations, instead of looking to God. But God continues to be faithful in this story. Remember that, that image of God walking through the split animal. He's saying, even when you break this covenant, even when you fail to live up to your part of this deal, of this arrangement, I'll take responsibility. And so again and again, God continues to remain faithful. And we see that every time people turned away from God, God would raise up these judges And these were men and women who would deliver Israel from their enemies at the time and point them back to God. And these judges were like champions. They were strong, prophetic, strategic military leaders that God appointed to lead Israel in times of need. You know, just a quick freebie for those of of those people that don't believe of in women leadership and church ministry. You know, one of the most well-known judges was a woman named Deborah. She was a strong prophetic military leader that would lead Israel to defeat their enemies and bring them back to God. So if you ever, if you ever talk to someone that doesn't believe in women and leadership, just tell them that. And so every time the people would find a way to F things up, God would raise up these judges to fix the mess that they made and bring them back to him. 
And so this goes on, and God is continuing to raise judges. We see this pattern of humanity continuing to stray away from God, God raising up judges, bringing them back. But it gets to this point where the people begin to notice that all these other nations that are coming at us, that are attacking us, that we're fighting with, all these other nations have kings. And so they're like, God, we want a king. Notice that up until this point, that these people had been following God, being directly led by them. But now they were looking at these other nations saying, why can't we be like them? Right? Once again, this theme, we know what's best for us and we want a king. We want a human king to lead us. And so God, he gives them what they want. And so just to fast forward, the first king of Israel was this dude named Saul. And Saul wasn't a very good king. But then came David, who the Bible records as a man after God's own heart. Surely that David will be able to do what no other person could do and lead the people in continuous covenant with God. And it's through David that God reestablishes his covenant one more time, from Abraham to Moses and now to David. And he reestablishes his covenant with Israel once again, and we find in First Chronicles 17, 11 through 14, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. God promises that through David's line, that God's throne will be established forever. And so we see a faithful God once again, reestablishing covenant with the very people that continue to violate his trust and his covenant with them. Now we have hope at this point that maybe this story will play out well, but we see that towards the end of David's life, He continues to find a way to mess things up. He commits adultery, murder, takes on many wives. And then after David comes Solomon. And this was the peak of Israel as a nation. If we look at the story of Israel, this is the peak of their story. They were at the highest status in this entire tale. You know, this time was a time of peace and prosperity. You know, Solomon had finished building a temple for the presence of God and Israel was so wealthy and people from all over the world marveled at Israel and at the temple that they had built for their God that housed his presence. And so this was the peak of Israel as a nation. But it's kind of like those horror movies where at the beginning they take a snapshot and everyone's happy, everything looks all good, but you know it's going downhill from there. And at the peak, at the very top of Israel as a nation, things begin de-escalating and diminishing very, very quick. Once again, the people turn away from God and break their covenant with him. And this is where Israel starts a downward spiral and hits rock bottom. The 12 tribes of Israel get into a fight and they're divided between northern and southern tribes, a divide which is still existent even to this day. 
right? Wicked king after wicked king again and again begin to rule the northern and the southern tribes and they're getting farther and farther away from God. They're continuing to worship idols, continuing to break their covenant with them and trusting in themselves and their idols and other nations above God. And they find themselves consistently attacked and invaded and eventually the people are exiled from their homeland. And this is the exile for hundreds of years. People are sold into slavery. They're exiled. They're murdered. They're raped. They're displaced. They lose their identity and their way. And they no longer hear from God. And we see the ripple effect from the fall. Just continuing on through human history in the story of Israel. All because... They refuse to trust in God and keep their covenant with him. And it seems like sin had won. It seems like this would be the end of the story. But remember, God had a dream. And God had a plan. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham He remembered his covenant with Moses. He remembered his covenant with David. He remembered all the way back to that moment in Genesis where we walked through the split animal and remembered that he was saying, I will be faithful even when you are unfaithful to me. I will take responsibility for your inability to hold up your end of the covenant. And during this time of exile, God begins to raise up these prophets that are trying to bring Israel back to God. But more importantly, these prophets begin foretelling, prophesying a coming redemption, not just for Israel, but to the entire world. And it would come through the redemption of Israel. And so we're going to look at two of them. We're almost closing here. I know it's getting a little long, but look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is what the prophet Jeremiah says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Remember God's dream. Jeremiah is prophesying, there's coming a day when I will be their God and they will be my people. And I won't have to write down the laws for them because it's going to be written on their minds and their hearts. They're not going to need these arbitrary lists of rules to love me and follow me because I'm going to put a new heart within them. Come on, let's look at Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28. This is the last prophecy we're going to look at. Ezekiel prophesies, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. Remember, they're in exile. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Come on. Even though humanity messes things up again and again and breaks their covenant again and again. God's saying, you know your hearts that are so full of sin. You know your hearts that cause you to have this propensity to F things up again and again. Well, I'm replacing it. And I'm going to take that heart of stone and I'm going to give you a new heart. And not only that, I'm putting my spirit in you. Remember when God created Adam, what did he do? He breathed into his nostrils the ruach or the spirit of life. He's saying, remember what it was like in the garden? Well, guess what? I'm restoring that. And you're going to have a new heart. You're not going to need these laws to love me or follow me. It's going to be written on that new heart. You will be my people and I will be your God and we will live in my dream for shalom. And how will God do this? Through Jesus. The one to succeed where Adam and Eve could not. Where Israel could not the animal who was slain in the garden to cover our nakedness and our shame, the lamb that would be split to make a way for us to walk through in covenant, the lamb whose blood was poured over and painted over the doors so that death would pass over us, the shepherd king from the line of David who would lead us into good pastures, Jesus. And so we see that God, His plan is continuing to play out in Israel's story. And in Israel's inability to keep their covenant with God, God is continuing to be faithful. And he's telling of a day of a coming Messiah who will restore new hearts into humanity and give us a new spirit and to see God's dream realized here on earth. I shared this a number of times, but I like to look at Israel's story like, you know, the movie Groundhog's Day. In that movie, Bill Murray, he wakes up every single day and it's the same day. And no matter what he does, he can't escape the cycle of waking up to the exact same day, morning by morning. And it's like that. Israel is stuck in this repeating cycle of sin and disobedience. I know I summarized a lot of chapters in the Old Testament, but in a nutshell, Israel keeps breaking their covenant with God. They keep messing up, making a mess of themselves, of their relationships, and they end up completely broken, completely demolished and exiled from their land. And they're incapable of doing it right and breaking the cycle. And so what God is saying is, I'm sending to you a son to do what Israel could not, to do what Adam could not, what Moses could not, what David could not, what Abraham could not, saying what you could not do. I am sending someone to break you out of your cycle of sin. You see, Jesus came to lead us in our exodus out of sin. He came to restore humanity to God's original dream of shalom. Jesus came as the fulfillment of our covenant with God. Now, I know that's a lot of information. That's a lot of story. What does this all mean for us? We're Israel. We're in a constant cycle of breaking covenant with God, making a mess of our lives and our world. 
and we're incapable of breaking out of this cycle of sin. We're incapable of breaking out of this human tendency to F things up. You know, if you read the Old Testament right, you're not thinking, look at these idiots. Like, why can't they get it right? They're so stupid. You know, if you're reading the Old Testament right, you're thinking, shoot, I'm that idiot. I'm the one that can't seem to get it right. I'm always making a mess of my life, my relationships. I'm always playing God and trying to take control back into my own hands. And if Israel's story teaches us anything, it's that we need a Messiah, someone to save us from ourselves, someone to break us out of our cycle of sin, someone to show us a new way, to give us a new heart and a new way of living. When we see the story, we should see more than ever that we need a Messiah. And we should know with more certainty than ever that God will continue to be faithful in pursuing us. And you know, this is what Lent is all about. You know, this Wednesday we begin our season of Lent as a church. And what Lent is, it's, it's on the church calendar every single year. We take 40 days to fast that leads up to Easter And it's supposed to help us prepare our hearts to experience the full reality of Easter and Jesus' resurrection. And you know, the 40 days of this fast, the Lenten fast, is meant to remind us of the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week. But as Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness and he fasted, when we look at that story, do you remember when, when the Israelites were wandering through the desert for 40 years? When we look at Jesus' 40-day fast, it should symbolize to us that where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. What Israel couldn't do, Jesus did. Where Israel kept failing in their covenant with God, Jesus succeeded. Where Israel failed in living in shalom, Jesus succeeded. And so as we fast during Lent, which we're going to kick off this Wednesday during Ash Wednesday, we're we're remembering that we failed, and where we failed, that Jesus succeeded. Where we failed to live up to our covenant with God, Jesus succeeded. Where we have made a mess of our lives, Jesus came to restore. Where we are hopeless, Jesus came to give hope. And so as we lead up to Wednesday and Ash Wednesday and prepare for Lent, I want you to begin to pray about what is God calling you to fast? What is he calling you to give up this season? You know, maybe it's something you feel that has a grip over your life. Or maybe it's something that you've turned into an idol, trusting that it will bring you more satisfaction than God. You know, one thing that I like to do is just make a list of things that God might be calling me to fast. And whichever I am the most reluctant to give up, maybe that's the thing. Because it just has that hold over your heart, you know. But as we fast, I don't want you to just pray about what we're giving up. But also, I want you to pray about what we're taking up. Remember, fasting is feasting, and what, as we empty, we must fill that empty space. And so maybe instead of that meal, you're, you're fasting that meal or that food, you'll spend time in prayer. Maybe instead of Netflix, you'll use that time to pray or read the word. Maybe instead of your dating app, you'll spend more time pursuing Christian community. Whatever it might be, whatever we give up, we also have to be intentional about what we take up. You know, this year, I don't quite know when I'm fasting yet, when I'm giving up. 
But the thing God keeps challenging me to do is to believe for ridiculous, stupid miracles, like things that can only be God. And I was challenged because I was like, I want more God stories in my life. I want to believe for things that are outside of my own grasp or effort or strength. And so, you know, one thing that we're believing for, we're actually in the process of moving. We're trying to move into a bigger space for baby. I'm ridiculously, stupidly believing for a house in Petrail Hill, which seems very impossible because even the cheapest house, the size that we need is like over a million dollars, but I'm believing in ridiculous faith. And so we have to also be intentional about what we're pursuing, what we're making space for. And so as you pray, you know, I want you to keep that in mind. And remember, this is a marathon. This isn't a sprint. We're fasting for 40 days minus Sundays, which will be Sabbaths where you can break fast. But I want you to set yourself up. If anything, take up small things and you could add more as time goes on instead of starting big and taking things out along the way. But this is a season, a consecrated time of going after God, of giving up and making space for him. And as we fast, let's remember Israel's story. That even Though we are faithless, he is faithful. That even when we stumble in our weakness, he is strong. That even when we break his heart, he pieces ours back together. And so fasting is a declaration that we need a Messiah. That we are just like Israel. And we have been continuing in our cycles of sin and brokenness. And we need a Messiah to break us out Break us out of our cycle of sin, our tendency to break things and hurt others, our greed, our selfishness, our distrust and our lust, our propensity to F things up. And so let's pray into that. Let's pursue that this season. And as we kick off our season of Lent this Wednesday, let's remember the story of Israel and remember how much we need a faithful God to continue being faithful to his covenant with us. Let's pray. Hey God, I know we kind of breezed through the story of your people, but I pray that if anything, if we walk away with anything, we would know the importance of this story, that you have chosen a people and that even when the people failed in upholding their covenant with you, you continued to be faithful. Not only that, you took responsibility for the breaking of our covenant. You did that for Israel and you continue to do that with us, that we are now your chosen people. We are now the ones that you have called to be the priests that release shalom here upon the earth. We are the ones who are called to manifest your dream here in this reality, here on this planet, here in our realms of influence. And even when we fall, you're there to continue being faithful to us. And so we thank you. You are our blazing fire pot. You are the fire that leads us through the split sea. You are the one that leads us out of wandering and into the promised land. You are the great king where all earthly kings have failed. You are the good shepherd that continues to lead his people into green pastures. And so today we put our trust in you. And as we prepare to fast, we remember our need for a Messiah. We love you, God. We give you our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.